Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, RatchetAndRatchet at gmail.com is the email address. Ratchet Book Club is where you can find us out on Twitter. I think I have this down to a pretty much science. It only took, like, what, 100 episodes? My bad, 98. I'm in 98 episodes, which is pretty fucking prolific, considering that I've only been doing this show since February. February 13th, I started doing Ratchet Book Club, which means I've been banging the fuck out of these episodes and I don't have enough reviews. So y'all can go to Podchaser and leave a review right now. Like, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review right now. You ain't even got to say shit. Just give me five stars. Because I've done a hundred episodes within four fucking months, five months. That's 20 episodes a month. And that's factoring in the fact that I started 13 days late in February. And there's only 28 days in February. That really doesn't mean anything when it comes to math, but I just wanted it to sound better. I'm a bad motherfucker. I'm dope as shit. And some of y'all motherfuckers need to acknowledge my deity level by giving me a review. If you're not going to give me a review, give me money. One is free. The other one costs money. I know money costs money. You can become a Patreon member, patreon.com slash single simulcast. You can buy me a coffee. You're not really buying me a coffee. You're buying me a book at buy me a coffee slash SSCast. But really, give me reviews. Let me get higher up on the charts in the Apple podcast. I don't give a fuck about them motherfuckers. But I give a fuck about y'all. And I know y'all give a fuck about me. So give a fucking not to leave a motherfucking review. Fuckers. But seriously, though, I appreciate you. I appreciate everything y'all do. The listening, the the interactions, all that old shit. Let five of your friends... Nah, fuck that shit. Let ten of your friends know about this goddamn show right now. Tag me on Twitter and tag like ten of your motherfucking friends and let them know about this goddamn show. Real talk. I'm nearly 100 and I'm keeping it 100. And white folks, y'all don't say 100 right. Y'all be like, I'm trying to keep it 100. No, motherfuckers, no. 100. H-U-N-N-I-D. No R, no E, no D. 100. Like, cops been doing to black folks for centuries. Hunting us niggas. 100. 100 for me, but I hid in the bushes. That's 100. So anyway. (laughs) 
in the last episode, uh, Murder fucked around and tried to hit on Mia Moore and got her drunk at the age of 19. Like, everybody in this book is a predator. <sighs> and then they were like, we can't do this again, which means they're going to do it again. That's, that's the way it always works out in these books. When they're like, we can't, we can never give in to our feelings that we have for each other. Even though he's perfect for me, it's so wrong because my sister says she doesn't really fucking like him. But, I mean, they're really setting this all up to be her and murder getting together for a while. Let's see how right I am. Chapter 5. Me and more. After my birthday, I avoided murder at all costs. It wasn't fuck you between me and him, and I could never hate him. It was more like out of sight, out of mind. As long as I wasn't in his presence, I would never have to deal with what we had done. So when he was home, I made sure that I was gone, and it seemed like he was avoiding me too. While I used to see him every day, now I was lucky to see him once a week. Anissa noticed a change in his presence, but she wasn't tripping. He was bringing in more money than a little bit, taking any and all business calls that came through for him. And as long as the paper trail didn't stop, Anissa didn't give a damn if he laid next to her at night or not. Despite our strained relationship, business did not stop, and he still had me count up his paper. He would drop it off on the inside of my door at night while I was asleep. In the morning, I would count it, write the total on a slip of paper, and put it all in his safe. It was ridiculous how we were acting, but it was our reality at the time. Lying in bed, I had not been able to sleep since my birthday. I felt so guilty over what had almost occurred between me and murder. As I tossed and turned, I knew sleep wouldn't come easy. I threw the covers off my body and got out of the bed. My head was pounding, so I didn't bother to turn on the lights. I went in the kitchen and poured myself a glass of water. On my way back to the room, I saw a silhouette sitting in the darkness on the couch. Anissa? I called out. I flipped on a light switch and saw her sitting there, anger written all over her face. Why are you sitting in the dark? It's three o'clock in the morning. I'm waiting for murder to get home, she replied coldly. That motherfucker cleaned out his safe and I want to know why. He's barely been here for the past three weeks, and now he moved his money. Ever since I've known him, I've always had access to his paper. He must have met some bitch who got him open, and I'm trying to find out what's up. Listeners, let me tell you right now. What you don't want to do ever in life is sit in the dark at 3 o'clock in the morning, waiting for people to come into your door. Even more so, if their name is murder. You don't want to be the first thing this nigga sees when he turns on the light. Sitting there staring at him with your high beams on, looking all mad. Have you never seen the video Never Scare a Brother? Let me recap it for you. A white boy pops out of a trash can trying to scare a nigga and the nigga punches the white boy in the face. Part 2. A white boy dresses up like a scarecrow and sits in a chair on Halloween with, with Halloween candy in his hands. And when a brother tries to grab the shit, he jumps up and grabs a brother's hand. He gets punched in the face. If you're sitting in the dark when a nigga just went on a murder mission and when he comes in, you're like, where were you? And it's dark and it's three o'clock in the morning. You might get shot. I'm just saying. 
I was in shock. It wasn't even like Anissa to be talking like this. So you think he's cheating? Anissa, his ass is not cheating on you. I defended him. I don't give a fuck about that nigga cheating. He could fuck the entire borough for all I care. But he's not about to be bankrolling the lifestyle of these busted ass hoes out here. I get the dough. Me and only me. So when his ass comes through the door, he gonna have to explain to me why I opened up his shit today and the motherfucker was on E, she said adamantly. Anissa was livid. And before I could respond, murder entered the condo. Where have you been? Anissa asked him. She got straight to the point, and from the look on Murder's face, I could tell that she had caught him off guard. Fuck you mean where I been, he shot back. You know what's up. Yeah, I do know what's up. And how you been acting lately ain't it. I went into your safe today, and guess what I found, she asked. Anissa was on a roll because she didn't even give him a chance to answer. Her hands were on her hip and her neck was rolling while her mouth spouted words like they were on fire. Nothing. That's what I found. It was empty. Are you fucking with another bitch? Now, just a side note. I could say that when I walked into the kitchen and my mom and dad were in a conversation, I knew what kind of a conversation it was based on my mom's body language. And if her hand was on her hip, then I dipped. My brother dipped. My dog dipped. Like, we got the fuck out the room. I took mine. <laughs> I left. <sighs> Anissa, you wildin', ma. I don't got time for this shit, he dismissed casually. I got business that I got to finish taking care of tonight. You always got business lately. You never used to hit the streets like this before. And when you were out, the safe was full, not empty. So you cashing out the next chick now? She asked. I could see murder getting upset. But he was trying to keep his composure. But like every woman does so well, Anissa knew how to push her man's buttons. Look, I'm not fucking with another bitch, and you know better than to question how I move. I tried to wife you, Anissa. You said you didn't want that. You didn't want to take the risk, talking all that shit about me not being dependable and about you needing a nigga to change before you could commit. Now you in here making a scene in front of little mama? What you want me to tell you, Anissa? You know how I get down. Ain't shit changed. It's never been about another bitch. It's about business. Murder reached into the duffel bag he was carrying and pulled out a thick wad of rubber band of money. And since it's all about the money, here. He tossed that shit in Anissa's face, then looked at her in disgust before walking out the door. I'm out. The door hit the hinges so hard that it shook the walls. Anissa threw her hands in the air and screamed in frustration. I thought they were going to say scream like she just didn't care, but you know. Fuck that. I know his ass is up to something. She grabbed her keys off the table and looked at me. Put on your shoes and ride with me for a minute. What? Anissa, I'm not even dressed. Where are we going? I asked, astonished at how far she was taking this. We're about to follow his ass, she declared. So let me make sure I got this straight. They wrote it so then the woman who said to her sister that she didn't give a fuck about this dude and their relationship as long as she was getting cashed out and that he could do whatever he wanted. They wrote a loophole into it so then they could follow him so then they could find out that he's a hitman and then they could join his crew. That's lazy. You Once again, you're making a woman who never had these feelings before suddenly have these feelings so then you can expand your story. I wanted to tell her ass no because I knew the murder was faithful to Anissa. 
He was never home because of me. But of course, I couldn't tell her that. Anissa was tripping over money, making herself look like a real gold digger, and that wasn't even her personality. Murder always took care of home. Whatever reason he had for clearing the safe, I knew it was a good one. Come on, Mia Moore. I slipped a hoodie on over my camisole and slipped into some skinny jeans. I stepped into my flip-flops and was out the door. I had never seen my sister and murder even disagree, so this full-fledged argument was so out of character for them both, right? I felt like I was the cause of it. Everything was fine before I made the stupid mistake of kissing murder. We slid into Anissa's Chrysler, and just as murder pulled out of the parking lot, we tailed him, making sure we stayed at least a half block behind him at all times. Anissa, are you sure you want to do this? I asked when I noticed us getting onto the bridge headed out of New York and into Jersey. The look she shot me told me to shut the fuck up and ride, so that's what I did. Even though in my gut I knew that something about the entire situation didn't feel right. You don't know murder like you think you do, Mia Moore, Anissa asked. The nigga ain't the saint that he be trying to make himself out to be. You want to know why you can't answer the phone in the house? The type of business he's into? The nigga's grimy, Mia Moore. He's a hustler, Anissa. He's never done you dirty. How can you say that, I asked. Baby sister, open your eyes. He ain't a hustler. He's the one the hustlers call when they got a problem or when they need to make a problem disappear. He's a killer, Mia Moore. He will murk your ass if the money was good. Why the fuck you think his name is Murder? Anissa stated harshly. She floored the gas pedal, trying to keep up with Murder. If you knew this shit, and you have such a hard stance about it now, and we know in the future that you become the Murder Mamas, how'd that work out? I need to see some real wordplay to see Anissa change from her saying he's a killer and all these things and blah, 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 and speaking bad on the nigga to becoming a murder mama. A killer, I thought incredulously. I'm around him all the time. How could I have not known? Why didn't he just tell me? I'm a big girl. I could have handled it. I was lost in my thoughts and couldn't picture the attentive man I had come to know killing anybody. But then the look of rage that I witnessed in his eyes the night of my party flashed from my mind. I will murder a nigga over you, he had said. I could hear his words as if he was in my ear whispering them at that very moment. Syllable by syllable, the phrase replayed in my mind. At the time, I thought he was being overprotective, but now I knew that he had meant every word he had spoken. It was something flattering about the fact that he would take a risk like that over me. Instead of feeling fear... I smiled, but quickly wiped it off my face so Anissa wouldn't take notice. I felt the car jerk as she hit her brakes suddenly and cut off her headlights. There that nigga go right there. The fuck is he doing way out here? He gonna make me beat a bitch ass, Anissa threatened. She was so blind with rage that she wasn't making sense. As I looked around, I frowned. We were pulling onto a dead-end street. There was nothing around us but old abandoned buildings. Anissa, I think you're taking this too far, I finally spoke up. I'm not trying to hear all that. All I know is that if he's meeting a bitch here, I'm going to fuck some shit up, she said. I sighed and noticed lights approaching from behind. Get down. Here comes somebody, she said. We inched down in our seats until the car had passed us and noticed that it was stopping directly next to murder's vehicle. The brake lights came on and somebody stepped out of the car. 
It was hard to see because all the streetlights were busted out on this part of town. I can't see shit, Anissa whispered. Can you see who just got out the car? I can only see murder, I replied. Fuck this, Anissa said. She got out of the car and shouted, Murder? What the fuck is going on? Nigga, you trying to set me up? I heard a man's voice yell out angrily. Man. I scrambled to turn on the headlights because I still couldn't see what was going on. Finally, I turned the lights on, illuminating the dead end. Murder reached for his pistol, but before he could pull it from his waistline, the guy Murder had been meeting withdrew first, pointing a chrome 4-5 in Murder's face. No! I heard Anissa scream as she ran towards the scene. Anissa! I yelled after her as I got out of the car. Murder rushed the dude who had to be twice his size, and his sneak attack caused the guy's gun to slide across the concrete. Murder! Anissa cried out as she watched the two men tussle on the ground. I'm giving her that voice because I figured that's the voice they want me to give her, which is from mad to in love. Oh no, I was so wrong. Murder. I caused all this. No. Murder finally pulled his gun, but the dude wasn't giving up easily. He grabbed Murder's wrist and used his weight to his advantage as they struggled for power. Both knowing that whoever ended up with the steel in their hands at the end was the only one leaving the scene alive. Anissa ran straight into the confrontation, grabbing the guy by the shirt. He flung her to the ground and muscled the gun away from Murder. I ran as fast as I could towards him. My flip-flops came off halfway there and the gravel dug into the bottom of my feet as I sprinted towards my sister. He had the gun pointed their way, but never saw me coming. I picked up a brick and smashed it against the side of his face with all my might. It was like an ant going against a giant, because although it dazed him, it didn't stop him from firing the gun. He slapped the shit out of me, sending me flying to the ground. I landed on my stomach, something hard digging into my side as I heard the gunshots ring out. Boom! Boom! No! I screamed. I felt Murder's gun directly underneath me, and I grabbed without thinking. And still lying on the ground, I scrambled backwards and fired. Boom! 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 The dude dropped instantly, and in the blink of an eye, behind some beef I didn't even own, I caught my second body. Flash the parry came back to me. I started to relive that nightmare all over again. Anissa screams in my ear. The baby she had killed because of him. All of a sudden, the man lying before me dying was Perry. The dude was scrambling, holding his stomach and choking on his own blood. Shakily, I stood to my feet, walked over to him and put the gun to his head. I pulled the trigger again and again and again until the click of an empty chamber forced me to stop and his blood splatter covered my shirt. Oh my God! Oh my God! Anissa yelled out. I'm so sorry, murder! I'm so sorry! I could hear sirens in my ears, but I couldn't force myself to move. My feet felt like they were made out of concrete. Mimor, help me! He shot! I was in a daze. I heard Anissa call my name, but it wasn't until I heard murder call me that I snapped out of it. Mimor! He called out sternly. I turned my head, my chest heaving, tears in my eyes and distress in my heart. I need you, Ma. His shirt was soaked in blood and Anissa helped him to his feet. 
He cringed in pain as her hand searched his body. Where are you hit? She asked, the sirens getting closer. Murder lifted his shirt to reveal the vest he wore underneath. It's just a shoulder wound, he stated. Come on, we gotta get out of here, he said with urgency. He led Anissa back to her car and put her on the pasture side. She was crying and kept apologizing over and over again. Get in the car, Anissa, he yelled as he stuffed her inside and closed the door. He then came over to me. The sounds of the police were right around the corner now. I knew they would be there at any minute. I looked up at murder. I shot him, I whispered. My hands were shaking. The second murder of my life had not been as easy to commit as the first. This one shook me to the bottom of my soul. Did he have kids? A wife? He was somebody's son. Did he deserve to die? All of these things ran through my mind in a split second. Murder put his hand on the side of my face. I know what you're feeling, Ma. I couldn't look him in the face. Look at me, he said. You did what you had to do. Now I need you to get your head together and fast. I need you to get out of here. Take this gun and take care of it for me. Listen to me, Mia Moore. It's important. He grabbed my shoulders and stared at me intensely. No weapons, no body, no murder. I need you to make that happen. I'm trusting you, little mama. I'll distract the police away from you. You're hurt. What about you? He's dead. They'll arrest you. I said as I shook my head. Just do it. He pushed me inside the car and hit the top of the roof. Drive, Mia Moore. Go now. I skirted out the dead end and took off down the road as I watched him run back and get into his car. I made a right off the dead end street just as the police car was pulling onto it. Then Murder turned recklessly to the left and sideswiped the police car purposefully to get them to follow him. Oh my God, me and Moore, they're going after him. Why did I do this? This is all my fault. That's not even me, Mia. I don't even do shit like this. Anissa cried hysterically. Shut up, Anissa, I yelled. What's done is done. You have to calm down. I have to get rid of this gun and we need to lay low. I can't think with you in my ear with all that crying. Anissa sat back in her seat and muffled her cries while I found myself driving back into the city. I worried about going across the bridge and paying the toll. I was paranoid. If by some chance the police had gotten the plate number on Anissa's car, then they would be waiting for us for sure. If the car got searched, then it would be a wrap because the murder weapon was under my seat with my prints all over it. When I came to the toll, I felt like my heart was going to explode. I was sweating. My face was swollen from being slapped to the ground and I knew I looked a mess. The worker didn't even look my way as she took my money and allowed me to enter New York. Where are we going? Anissa asked. I have to do something, I replied quietly. It's important. I found myself driving to Queens, to the pawn shop the murderer had taken me to when I first got out. I was surprised that I remember where it was, but instinct led me there. He had told me to get rid of the gun. This was the only way I knew how to. Let me make sure I got this straight. When she was first out, murder took her to the mall and bought her all this stuff and then took her to this dude's house where they have acid to destroy guns. But 
was she paying attention to the address or anything like that? I know when I was 18 in the passenger side of my brother's car, I didn't pay attention to where streets were, addresses were, uh, where I should get off on the freeway to even get the fuck home. Like, seriously, seriously, ask your kids if you have kids. If not, ask, you know. Well, you can't just walk up to a little kid and ask them questions. But if you see like a, a a person, ask them how long it was before they knew how to get home. And I bet you it wasn't when they were 18. So for her to remember how to get to some random person's house in a completely different borough from where she is in the dark at three o'clock in the morning without any GPS or anything like that, for her to just me- memorize it, for her to just remember it for real. Hmm. It was too early for the pawn shop to be open, so we waited. Anissa eventually fell asleep, but I couldn't. Not after everything that had gone down. I was wide awake and more afraid than I had ever been. The moon disappeared as the sun kissed the city streets and welcomed a new day. Hours had passed, and when I finally saw the owner approach the pawn shop, I jumped out of the car and met him at the front door. I need your help, I said frantically. He looked at me curiously, probably wondering what hell I had been through since my face was bruised and there was still blood all over me. Murder sent me. I need to get rid of a gun. The older man nodded and ushered me inside, then locked the door behind us. I put the gun out on the counter the same way I'd seen Murder do months before. It's 500 each gun, he said. I don't have any money, I admitted. I'm not running a charity, girl. 500 is my price, he stated. You know who has money, y'all? You know who does? Anissa. You know why she has money? Because murder threw it in her face. And she's going to feel so badly about, oh my God, I did this to murder. And she's going to give up the money. I held the car key to Anissa's whip in my hand. I held it up for him. Take the car. For a $500 debt, you're giving me a brand new car? The man asked suspiciously. I'm asking this suspiciously too. It ain't even your goddamn car. How are you making this executive decision? Look, I yelled in desperation. I need to get rid of this gun. I don't give a fuck about the car. How much is the car worth? I'll give you ten grand for it, the man stated. Fine. Give me $9,500 and make this gun disappear, I settled. I mean... Literally, he threw money in Anissa's face. She has it out in the car. You're giving up her car instead of taking her money. You're giving away someone else's car. It's not your car. (sighs) He nodded, and I followed him to the basement where the barrels of acid were located. After watching the gun dissolve into acid, I felt relieved. You need anything else? He asked and motioned towards the wall of guns and weapons. This is actually funny now that I think about it because I was playing this role-playing game a couple nights ago called Star Ocean, uh, the second story. It's old school. I'm an old school person. Don't fuck with me. Um, And in there, you sell your weapons. When you walk into a shop, you usually don't have enough gold, so you got to sell your old weapons and stuff in order to procure new weapons and, and, and medicines or whatever. She done sold her sister's car, and he's like, do you want to buy anything else? And the music's playing in the background. And she's like, I'll take that gun. And it's like... Yeah, you're going to need that gun when Anissa finds out you literally sold her car. 
She wouldn't even let you drive without L's and you sold it. I nodded. After what I had just done, I didn't want to be caught slipping. I had no idea what kind of repercussions would come from my actions and I wanted to be prepared. Give me something small. The old man pulled a small black twenty-five from the wall. How does that feel in your hands, he asked. I gripped the tiny handgun and nodded my head in approval. I'll take it. I rushed out of the shop to find Anissa waiting anxiously in the car. Get out, I instructed. What you mean, get out? What's happening? She looked terrible. Her eyes were bloodshot from crying and she had bags full of worry. I sold your car, I said. What? She exclaimed. Niece, this car could be traced back to that murder scene. It's not worth it. I split the money I had left with her. We'll take the subway back home. We need to wait to hear from murder. How did you know where to go to get rid of the gun, she asked. I stopped walking and turned towards her. Murder taught me, I replied. I sold your car. It's because it's hot. You know, if anybody saw the license plate at like 3 o'clock in the morning in an empty dead-end street when nobody else is there except for us, murder, and a dead guy, then we could get hit up. Also, because I sold your car and I feel badly about it, I'm going to give you half of what I got your car for. Also, also. A Chrysler 300 runs about thirty thousand dollars, thirty to forty thousand, depending on options and shit. And you sold it for ten thousand, and you think you're doing something, and then you split it in half with her. So she got five thousand dollars for a car that she didn't even want you to drive. Okay. Chapter six. Back to the cartel. You know what? I'm not even going to do that. I'm going to use the real music. Okay. I feel like I need to explain for the uninitiated about what's about to happen here. So there was this song back in the 90s out here in California from this group called In Too Deep called Back to the Hotel. And it was slapping. It really was. And it had an absolutely iconic beat. Jay-Z actually used it for Show Me What You Got, which was not an iconic song, but I digress. So whenever we go from... The Murder Mama story, Back to the Cartel. You see what I did there? We're going to play the Back to the Hotel beat. I'm not even going to say Back to the Cartel. I'm just going to play the beat. Okay? You with me? Let's go. Carter sat inside the Diamond Estate, his father's home. Now his home. Inside an angst from his current circumstance. He had been released from jail just weeks before because of the prosecutor's star witness, Ace, suddenly had a change of heart. Carter smiled, knowing the Mecca and Zaire had come through for him and got him off the hook. Now that he was out, he had more important things on his mind instead of prison. Mecca sat across from him, cautiously watching Carter. Both men were silent, each with a different pain in his heart. The war with the Haitians had been won, but at what cost? They both felt like they had given up too much in order to win. Yes, they still had control of the city, but everything that really mattered in life had been destroyed. Their family had been dismantled all for the sake of power. Where is she, fam? Carter asked aloud as he opened and closed a black velvet ring box that contained the engagement ring that he had planned to give to Mia Moore. 
It had been months and he hadn't heard from her. As soon as he was arrested, Mia Moore disappeared. And although he could deal with the thought of incarceration and he could handle all the risks that came with the game, he couldn't fathom the idea of never seeing her again. He could see her face, her smile, her eyes, as if she had just been by his side yesterday. She was on his brain constantly, and as long as he was unaware of her whereabouts, he wouldn't be able to concentrate on anything else. She was important to him. The only thing that he had left to keep him sane. She was the woman who was supposed to be his wife and bear his children. How could she just walk away, he thought grimly. The thought angered and saddened him at the same time. Mecca stopped himself from smirking. Look at this love-sick-ass nigga, he fumed. He was tired of Carter sulking over Mia Moore. He didn't feel a need to tell Carter of Mia Moore's deception. He had handled that beef personally. And now that she was out of the picture, he was completely satisfied. He had avenged the deaths of his mother and sister. Although vengeance had come at the expense of Carter's heart, he knew in time Carter would move on with his life. Nigga, you need to take them blinders off when it comes to that bitch, Mecca stated harshly. She left you stinking. You haven't seen or heard from her since the day you were knocked. She was probably a fed or something. Forget about her. Grimy ass bitch was playing a role to get you caught up. You took the bait. It happens to the best of us. Mecca's words made Carter's heart throb in agonizing pain. The thought of Mia Moore's betrayal was too heavy a burden for him to carry. Maybe you're right, bro, he said with doubt. Nigga, I am right. That bitch got you around here fucked up. You a clean nigga. She got you growing beards and shit, Mecca joked, making light of the situation. You need to be thinking about keeping the feds off your doorstep. Just because that snitch nigga ace is in the wind don't mean you in the clear. The government doesn't lose often. You walking free is an embarrassment to them. They're not done with you yet, so we need to be prepared for whatever they have planned. After your freedom's guaranteed, the rest will fall into place. Carter nodded, knowing that Mecca was speaking the truth. He was focused on all the wrong things. His life was hanging in the wings, and he needed to be at his best in order to overcome the odds that were stacked against him. Mecca stood. I'm out of here, fam. I'll get with you later. I won't be making too many more trips to this side of town coming to check on you. I still have issues left unsettled, he said, reminding Carter of his unfinished business with Emilio Estes. Keep a body with you at all times, Carter said with authority. Don't be on that Superman shit, Mecca. You can't go against the Dominican Mafia alone. Mecca lifted his shirt with one hand, revealing a 380 snub chrome 9mm and a 45 tucked against his rock hard abdomen. Fuck another nigga. I got my bitches lined up right here, Mecca replied arrogantly. They won't catch me slipping again. Carter nodded. I hear you. Be smart and be careful, he said. Carter arose and walked around the Immaculate Mansion. The gray sweats and white t-shirt he wore were very uncharacteristic of him. The fear of the unknown had him out of his element, and he spent his days confined to the house, his thoughts of me and more driving him insane. He had everything in the world that a man could want. Power, money, luxury. But without her, it all held no value. He would easily give it all up to be with her. And it thought that her love for him ran just as deep. Pouring himself a glass of Remy VSOP, 
he made his way over to the picturesque window that overlooked the front of the estate. A cable van sat on the street, undoubtedly filled with federal agents who were monitoring his home, trying to build a new case on him. He wouldn't give them the ammunition that they needed to send him away. Prison was not for him. He sent them to their graves before they shipped him back to prison. He opened the door and walked outside. He acknowledged his armed workers with head nods as he carried the glass of cognac in his hand. Fifty men surrounded the estate, all fully aware of everything and everyone around him, but no one was allowed to enter his home with the exception of Mecca and Zaire. Carter made his way to the gate and nodded for his keeper to open it. He walked to the edge of the street to retrieve his daily newspaper. A huge picture of his face covered the front page. Drug kingpin Carter Jones walks free. The cable truck wasn't even five feet away from him. He smirked and held up the paper for the feds to see. Then he approached the van. Good morning, gentlemen, he greeted when he finally reached the driver's side. We've been made, he heard an agent whisper from the back. The driver of the van watched him with cold eyes. Of course you've been made. Look up and down the street, Carter said. Cable vans don't quite fit in with $100,000 cars. But cable vans do fit in when you have fucking cable, so. His arrogance and power intimidated even the highest of the law. He could see that he made them nervous. It takes a wolf to catch a wolf. Carter was one man who will not be easy to get to. They were playing out of their league, and their amateur tactics to surveillance proved that. Step away from the vehicle, Mr. Jones, the driver commanded. Carter smiled at the officer's attempt to be dominant, but the tremble in his voice revealed his cowardice. Not a problem, but I would like to see your badge. Since it's obvious that you'll be guests in front of my home, I need to be sure you are who you say you are. You understand, Carter answered sarcastically. The federal agent removed his badge and handed it to Carter. Carter inspected it with the same hand he held his drink in, then passed it back. He tapped the inside of the driver door. Agent Marshall, he said as he smiled and walked away. Carter slightly slipped a transparent audio device, no larger than a small piece of tape, onto the back of the agent's badge, and also one on the inside of the van. Idiot motherfuckers, he thought to himself as he entered back onto his property and disappeared inside of his home. He thought that they were watching him, but now he would know exactly what they were saying. He would always be one step ahead of them now that he had infiltrated their operation. The listening device had a radius of 100 miles, and wherever that badge went, Carter's ears would follow. I'll even hear you fucking your wife at night, he thought. Carter rubbed the abundance of hair on his face and thought, Mecca's right. I need to get my shit together and stay focused. Breeze whimpered weakly as a cold sweat drenched her body and chills stiffened her spine. Her light skin was a sickly bluish tint, and she was barely strong enough to lift her head. Okay, let's dead this shit right the fuck now. What should I do if I think I've been bitten by a black widow spider? In rare and extreme cases, black widow... Spider venom poisoning may lead to seizures and even death, but death generally doesn't occur in healthy adults. Okay? Okay, I'm going to close this fucking picture because it's a whole bunch of fucking black widows and that shit is icking me out. Mattia tried to stop the poison from spreading. He said he had anti-venom. He said he had it. Nigga, what? 
but his home remedies were useless. What the fuck did you have? Was your anti-venom fucking ginger ale? Chicken soup and fucking prices right? Like, what exactly was your... You said you had anti-venom, Matee. Matee had tried to stop the poison from spreading, but his home remedies were useless. A home remedy is not an anti-venom. Nigga, I can say I have a home remedy for um, an insomniac and it's warm milk. That's not a clear and, and proven source. You said you had an anti-venom. They wrote that already. And the medicine he had given her had no effect on her condition. Breeze's foot was swollen and the skin directly around the spider bite was black. The red streaks going up her leg were a clear indication that the poison was spreading. If she didn't get medical treatment in a matter of days, she would be dead. I mean, maybe a brown recluse. I can see that. Brown recluses are some nasty motherfuckers, but a black widow? Water, she whispered desperately as Matisse jumped at her every beck and call. The tender way in which he touched her revealed his growing obsession. He was crazy over her. In his mind, no one loved her more than him. He would die before he gave her back. Breeze was the only thing he had left in this world, and he imprisoned her so then she would only be his. She was too beautiful for anyone else to see, too delicate for anyone else to touch. She belonged to him. Oh, oh, shit, I forgot to mention this. I'm so sorry, y'all, to just jump into the middle of this part and do this. I thought that with the telling of the murder mamas, they were finally going to give Anissa a backstory. But they still have not given her anything past pain and agony and anger. She's an angry person at this point in time to reveal what's actually going on in this situation. She's angry to move this story forward, but she has no other story. It pisses me off. I'm sorry. They should at least talk to Anissa at some point in this since her and Mia Moore were in this together. But I guess because she's dead and Mia Moore didn't know what was going through her mind, she'll never tell that story. But still, they give her nothing to grow on. And they're doing that to Breeze right now. She belonged to him. He could not see it, but his possession over her was slowly causing her sanity to abandon her. She didn't have the strong diamond will that the rest of her family possessed. You know, strong as a diamond. You get it now, right? And she's the only one who doesn't have it because it fits the storyline. Her eyes were empty as if her soul was now gone. She had lost all hope and as she looked up at the man who had taken her away from everyone she loved, she cried. She didn't have the strength to fight anymore. She was his slave in every sense of the word. He had taken her body, her mind, and her spirit and trapped him in Haiti. Even if she did ever make it out alive, she would never be the same. Things could never go back to the way they used to be. She had endured too much. Psychologically, she was ruined. Emotionally, she was drained. Physically, she was raped. These are real words. They wrote this shit. When I write stories, I pour over them and I think about shit over and over again. And they thought that was some real cool shit to write. The lovely young woman that Breeze used to be didn't exist anymore. Only Mati had the key to set her free, and she knew that that would never happen. 
Breeze began to cough violently and bile flew from her mouth, her body desperately trying to get rid of some of the venom that was slowly killing her. Matisse sat near her bedside and applied ice to her wound and a cold wet towel to her forehead to try and lower her fever. Her temperature was dangerously high, yet she felt so cold that she shivered. He desperately tried to bring Breeze's health back up to par, but the more days had passed, the worse she became. He wasn't ready to let her go. He refused to lose her, even to death, so his only alternative was to take her to the only doctor in town. Matisse knew that he was taking a big risk by taking Breeze to town, but if he wanted her to live, then he had to. He stood to his feet and looked around at all of the Polaroid pictures he had taken of Breeze. They covered the walls, almost entirely constructing his very own wallpaper of lunacy. They were his masterpiece. So beautiful, he whispered. The photos chronicled her time in Haiti. Her smileless face and hateful expressions went unnoticed by him. He was delirious to think that he loved her. The misery and fear that he was causing her was evident on her face in every photograph. He went upstairs to retrieve his gun, rummaging through his kitchen drawers until he found bullets to load it with. He was unsure about taking her to town, but his hand was forced. He didn't have a choice. Matisse returned to her side. Me princess, he said as he stroked her face with the nose of his gun. Breeze turned her head in disgust, causing her to vomit even more. Me am gonna take you to town to see the medical doctor, but you have to promise not to run. Me run the entire city. If you say one word to anybody, me will kill you, young Breeze. You understand? Breeze did not respond. Hot tears had dried on her ashen face. Do you understand? Matisse asked again. Breeze nodded her head and felt Matisse lift her from the bed. The feel of his hands on her body made her cringe as he carried her to the back of his mansion and into the thick of the jungle. The average person would have become lost in a jungle-filled mountain terrain, but Matia had grown up here. He navigated the area well and knew the dangers that lay underneath the deceiving appearance of the land. Even the most beautiful flower could be deadly. He, they're talking about Breeze. At some point in this, Breeze is going to end up killing Matia. Breeze tried her hardest to remember the path that Matisse took so that she would know the way back to town. But she was so weak and everything looked the same. She will never remember the way, he said as if he was reading her mind. So stop trying. They came to a clearing where a green hummer sat covered in a tarp that was disguised by brush and leaves. Matisse sat Breeze down on the ground and removed the large tarp, then placed her in the passenger seat. There's a car here, she thought. I have to remember how to get back to this spot, she told herself. Matisse started the Hummer and drove the rough terrain the rest of the way down the mountain, navigating the deadly path like an expert until he reached the town below. For the first time in months, Bree saw other people's faces besides Matisse as they passed some of the other townspeople, but her health was fading. Everything appeared blurry, and the pain radiating through her body was becoming unbearable. Matisse drove with one hand on his gun and the other on his steering wheel. Remember what me told you, instructed as the car finally stopped moving. He attempted to carry her out of the car, but she fought him, pushing him off her. Don't touch me! I'll walk! She screamed in frustration. She shook like a leaf in a strong wind as she stepped out of the car, but she was determined not to have his hands on her in public. However, when she put weight onto her poisoned foot, her body came crashing down like a house of cards. 
Stop fighting me and let me help you. Mati whispered the words, but it sounded more like a demand as he bent down and scooped her up in his arms. She had lost a considerable amount of weight and was light as a feather. Against her will, her head fell onto his chest and she looked up at her captor. It was the first time she had ever looked directly at Mati, and his heart melted into her gray eyes. Please, let me go, she pleaded. I can never do that, my princess. Once you learn to love me, your life will be filled with riches, he promised. He carried her into the doctor's office and rushed over to the receptionist's desk. Please, help me. Me daughter was bitten by a black widow and is extremely sick. The receptionist took one look at Breeze and stood to her feet in a panic. Doctor! The most beautiful woman Breeze had ever seen came rushing out of the back. Oh my, she exclaimed to Breeze's condition. Please, put her over here. Hurry. Mati rushed and placed Breeze on a stretcher. The doctor began to wheel her to the back of the office while Mati followed closely behind. No, please, sir. You need to wait up front and let me do me job. Me will take care of she, the doctor reassured. Me receptionist has paperwork for you to fill out. Me will keep you updated. Matisse's eyes shifted from the doctor to Breeze as he became nervous. He had not planned on leaving Breeze's side. He nodded and said, Can I just speak to me daughter for one moment? The doctor nodded and Matisse walked over to Breeze. Me will kill you. He said as he wrapped his hand around her tiny neck. What? What the fuck? How does the doctor not? He applied pressure and leaned over her so the doctor could not see what he was doing. He had killed many men in his lifetime. And he knew that there was a delicate balance between death and unconsciousness. Breeze felt her oxygen being cut off. And she wanted to struggle. But her body felt so heavy. The poison was rendering her helpless. If you say a word, me will kill you. Those were the last words she heard before she went unconscious. Mattia cut off her air supply long enough to knock her out without killing her. He hoped she would stay that way until the doctor would allow him to be by her side again. He turned to the doctor in panic. She's passed out. Please help she. He whispered as he wiped tears from his eyes. It's the poison. It's shutting down her nervous system. Why didn't you get help sooner? The doctor asked. Mattia played the grieving father well. He acted as if he was so choked up that he couldn't respond. Me will do all me can, the doctor said before taking Breeze and disappearing between two double doors. Mati paced back and forth in the waiting area for two hours. He kept watching the clock, each minute taunting him and threatening to expose him. Finally, the doctor emerged through the double doors. How is she? Mati asked. She'll be fine with medicine and rest, the doctor replied. Can me see her? He asked. The doctor shook her head. Not right now. She is still asleep. We have her in a sterile recovery room. Me cannot allow you back there and risk infection. When she awakens, me will come get you. Matisse sat down impatiently, his leg bouncing in anticipation as he watched the doctor disappear in the back once more. Here's my question. If he runs the whole city and everybody knows who he is like he just bragged to Breeze, then why didn't this doctor recognize him and recognize that he only had a daughter who was like three? Infamy has two sides to it, right? So that should have played out that way? Breeze's eyes were so heavy that she could barely open them. Flashes of white light sneaked through her closed lids as she slowly came out of the anesthesia. 
Her head was groggy, and she could barely remember where she was. But when she closed her eyes, it all came rushing back to her like a bad dream. The jungle, the spider bite, the doctor. Every detail was fuzzy, but it was all slowly coming back to her. I'm at the doctor's office. I have to get out of here before my tea comes for me, she thought. It took all of her might to roll onto her side. Her neck felt as if she was a newborn baby. She couldn't support her head and her vision was blurry. Get up, she urged herself. Get up! There was an IV in her arm. She snatched at it. She was so weak that she could barely get the needle out of her arm. Forcing herself to sit up, she stood on wobbly legs which caused excruciating pain to shoot up the right side of her body. She shook her head from side to side trying to clear her vision and saw that she had an incision that ran down the length of her leg and that her foot was bandaged. The anesthetic hadn't completely worn off and it was hard for her to stay focused. Her limbs were so lazy, every move she made exhausted her, but she fought the urge to lie back down. The ringing of a phone snapped her to attention. I have to get to that phone, she thought. Breeze was in a state of emergency. This was her only shot to reach out to her family. She knew that if she didn't make it to that phone, she could kiss everything she ever knew goodbye. She forced herself to stand on her injured foot. She wanted to scream at the pain that she felt when she was fully standing. But instead, she closed her eyes and took deep breaths until the blinding ache died down and she was able to move. The excruciation kept her alert as she used the objects in the room to help her towards the door. Where's the phone? She whispered to herself. She stuck her head into the hallway. She could see the double doors that led to the lobby. Behind them was Mati, lurking, praying on her. Her heart rate increased from the fear of seeing his face again. Desperation and adrenaline filled her as she put her back against the wall and crept into the next room. She opened the door and frantically scanned for her phone. Thank you, God, she cried as she rushed towards it. Moving too quickly, she fell. Ah! She accidentally cried out as her leg hit the floor. She covered her mouth to stop herself from making too much noise. Tears flooded her face as she reached for the phone. The dial tone she heard was like music to her ears. Her fingers trembled as she tried to dial out, causing her to dial the wrong number, 810. Shit! What is his number? Her mind was so frantic that she could barely recall the correct sequence. 1-810-625-1816. There's no country code for America? Oh, so apparently it's 1. We're number 1. We're number 1. But... You have to dial the appropriate international access code, which is 011 in some countries, plus 1, plus the area code, plus the local number. Okay. So, let's see if when in Haiti, there's a, uh, you have to dial that code. So, according to this, you have to dial 00, and then 1, and then the area code, and then the telephone number to dial out of Haiti to the United States. She could hear footsteps coming down the hallway, and she cradled the phone for dear life. Please answer... Come on, please pick up. Ring, ring. Answer, she begged as the footsteps drew nearer. Please, I need you. Ring, ring. Zaire bobbed his head to the Rick Ross beat that was blaring from his speakers when he felt his cell phone vibrate on his hip. He was on his way back from Opalaka, and he had a quarter million dollars in his trunk and rode with a pistol in his lap for extra security. He turned down the stereo and looked at the unknown call coming in on his Blackberry. Yo, he answered. All he heard was crying in the phone, 
and he started to end the call thinking that someone had the wrong number. Zaire, the shaky voice said. He recognized her voice instantly. Emotions came rushing over him. Breeze? He whispered in disbelief as his heart sank into his stomach. So out of everybody you could have called, including the millionaire, billionaire, probably millionaire, but still millionaire brother who's the head of a fucking cartel who will fly to Haiti and kill everybody moving, you call Zaire. You don't know your brother's number? You ain't got that? For real? But you know Zaire's number by heart. That's who you call him? Okay. Breeze was so hysterical when she heard him answer the phone that she couldn't get words together. Of course. Every time she tried to speak, only sobs came out. Breeze, talk to me, Ma. Calm down. Where are you? You got to tell me where you are, she heard him yell. So she is strong enough to make it to the room to make this call to him. She's strong enough to walk on an ankle that is lacerated, like cut open with poison in her. She's strong to do all that, but as soon as she gets on the phone with him, she's crying so much she can't get the words out, which will give Mattia enough time to snatch her back up and let Zaire know that she's alive and that they need to search for her some more. Just the sound of his voice caused her to fall apart. Zaire, she whispered frantically. Zaire, please, were the only words she was able to get out before the footsteps were at her door. She hurried and pushed the telephone underneath the bed, but didn't disconnect the call. The door opened, and a confused doctor rushed inside. What are you doing in here? Chusha's should still be in recovery, she said. Please, Zaire, I have to talk to Zaire, Breeze pleaded with the doctor, but she was quickly silenced when she heard Mati demanding to see her. The heavy impact from his boots echoed against the hospital floor, announcing his presence. Don't let him take me, Breeze cried as she looked the doctor in the eye. The doctor could see the frightened look on Breeze's face, and she instantly knew that something was not right. When Mati appeared in the doorway, the doctor looked from Breeze to Mati. Is everything okay back here? he asked. His voice was eerie and threatening. Breeze's fear of him was so great that she felt like she was having a heart attack. She couldn't stop herself from crying. Zaire was so close. She had heard his voice. I just needed a few more minutes to tell him where I am, she thought as she sobbed. Everything is fine, the doctor answered nervously. She helped Breeze into the bed and lifted her leg. She is in a lot of pain and I haven't administered any pain medications yet. This type of pain will make a grown man cry. It is not unusual. Me need to get her back home. She could recover there, Matias asserted. His tone did not leave room for protest, and he came into the room and sat next to Breeze, who trembled timidly from his presence. Matia examined her closely, intimidating her. The doctor could sense tension in the air. She rubbed Breeze's shoulders. The anesthesia has she temperature low, the doctor said, covering for Breeze. Breeze wasn't shaking because she was cold. She was angry. She was terrified. She was praying that Zaire had not hung up his phone and that he could somehow save her. The doctor looked Breeze directly in the eye and said, Everything will be fine. I'm going to get discharge headed for you to sign, young lady. Me will be right back, she said. The doctor disappeared, and Matisse sat down directly on the bed with her. The smell of him nauseated her and made her skin crawl. He didn't say a word to her, but instead stared at her intensely trying to determine whether or not she had told anybody anything. Breeze closed her eyes and thought of Zaire. 
She recalled his face in her mind and forced herself to calm down. The doctor re-entered the room. Oh, please, sir. You can wait in the hallway while she dresses. Me will help she, and then get you the medication she needs. She'll be fine, the doctor said. Matisse reluctantly left the room, but he made sure to watch through a peephole at the top of the door. What the fuck? Why do they have peepholes? Why? And you told him to leave so she could get dressed, but he's still looking through her peephole, and he's supposed to be your dad. Mm-hmm. The doctor handed Breeze a clipboard. Her hand shook because something told her that this young girl was in grave danger. You mean besides her telling you that she was in grave danger? She knew who Mati was. Everyone in Haiti knew who he was and what he was capable of. The doctor didn't want to get involved out of fear of being hurt herself. Breeze cried as she took the pen. She wrote her first and last name on the clipboard and then jotted a quick note. Please help me. Call this number. 1-810-625-1816. Tell him I'm alive. I'm trapped somewhere in the mountains. Please. Breeze dressed slowly, and then Matee whisked her away from the doctor's office and back up to captivity. I wonder what happens if I dial that number. Hmm. Uh, 1-810-625-1816. 1816. Call speakerphone. Goes to Michigan. Huh. Okay. 916-665. I don't forgot my number fucking with Mati or fucking with Zaire's number. 916-633-1537. It's a voicemail number. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com is the email address. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter is where you can hit me up at. Uh, Leave a review at Podchaser, Apple Podcasts. Let me know where you left it at. Um, Yeah. They don't give a fuck about the women in these books. I don't know. Is that what y'all are looking for? Like nothing for the women and everything for the guys? Like seriously. And also... So, Mecca sounds real confident talking shit about uh, me and more, but what's going to happen when she shows up all sliced up and shit? Because obviously she's not dead. She's somewhere recovering. When she shows up all sliced and shit, is Carter going to kill Mecca? These are the questions. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. outro to ratchet book club is by that kid garan and it's called goodbyes you can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat this is single simulcast